0: You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together this afternoon. We turn first of all to the Old Testament, to Ezekiel 37, beginning at verse 7. Here the prophet Ezekiel is directed to prophesy to a valley filled with bones Then the word of God begin our reading at verse 7. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound. And the bones came together bone to bone. I looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them. But there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come from the four winds, O breaths, and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. And he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. O my people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and bring you up from them, I will put my spirit in you, and you will live, and I will settle you in your own land. And then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken, and I have done it, declares the Lord. Let me turn as well to Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 1 to 17, as well as the verses 26 and 27. And there the Apostle Paul writes, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be the sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. Who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you receive the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father! The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Then verse 26 and 27, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes with us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. I preach to you this afternoon from the Word of our God as the Church summarizes and confesses this in Lord's Day 20 of the Heidelberg Catechism. For the fourth time, we turn to Lord's Day 20, question and answer 53. What do you believe concerning the Holy Spirit once again? First, he is together with the Father and the Son, true and eternal God. Second, he has also given to me to make me by true faith share in Christ and all his benefits to comfort me. And to remain with me forever. I love a congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Imagine this, just try for a moment to imagine it, that someone comes to your house tomorrow morning armed with a suitcase in one hand and a toolbox in the other. He walks right in, and he begins to systematically overhaul your house. First, he throws out everything that is old, worn, useless, and limping, and that means out go the furnace and the freezer and the fridge and the stove and so much else that doesn't work right anymore. And thereafter, he proceeds to fix this and remodel that and take that wall out and put that wall in. And then he changes the plumbing and the lights and the fixtures. And thereafter, he proceeds to the drywall and the painting and the renovation and decoration. And the result, you have a completely renovated house. It's the same place, but it's not the same place anymore. But yet that's not all, for once he is finished, he does not leave. No, what he does is stick around. He keeps right on fixing, repairing, improving things as they come along. It's as if you have a permanent Mr. Fix-It or a renovation company Living in your house. Now, of course, those things happen only in your dreams, right? Especially if you have two left hands and you can't really fix anything. You may fondly dream that someone like this would come into your life and into your house and do all those nasty little jobs for you. But you know it will never happen. Or will it? Is it true that it will never happen? Is this just so much wishful thinking and idle speculation? Does this belong to the realm of the stuff that never, ever really happens? Now, beloved, this afternoon I would deny that. For really, what I have just described is something that happens often. And indeed, it happens often in the Christian life. For think about it for a moment. Are all of us not promised just such a person as this? And indeed, is the Holy Spirit not a person like this? Is he not the great renovator remodeler of the Christian life? Beloved, I would assert this afternoon that he is. And because he is, we have another reason to be thankful. Tomorrow is, of course, Thanksgiving Day in Canada, and we remember the harvest and the gifts, that, the blessings that God has bestowed in the past year. But, you know, if you think of it really and truly, every day should actually be Thanksgiving Day. Every day we have reason to give thanks to the Lord for the fact that the Spirit lives in us and works in us as well. So I'd like to preach to you this afternoon on the following theme, the Spirit and the believer. We shall see that he comes to us, he works in us. And he stays with us. Well, beloved, in our series of sermons on the Holy Spirit in connection with Lord's Day 20 of the Heidelberg Catechism, we have looked at the Spirit's activity in the Old Testament. We have also considered the Spirit's involvement in the life and the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. As well, we have looked at the impact of the Spirit on the church as a whole, This afternoon we turn our attention to the Spirit and what He does in the life of the believer. So the question is, what does the Spirit really do for us and in us? What does He do for you and I personally? The first thing that we need to be clear about is that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, comes to us. More specifically, he is sent to us. The Lord Jesus said to his disciples shortly before his departure, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And earlier he had said to them as well, I will send him to you. And so we need to understand that the spirit who comes to us is the sent spirit, the dispatched spirit. Spirit, the promised Spirit. And who is doing the sending? None other than God the Father and God the Son. Both are behind His coming and His sending. Both are insistent upon it. In other words, the coming of the Holy Spirit to us is not something that we, that you and I have any kind of say over. We don't invite Him to come on one bright blue morning. We don't make Him come, force Him to come. We are not in control of His coming. No, this all happens because God makes it happen. It happens because God the Father and God the Son send Him and because the Holy Spirit Himself agrees to be sent. In short, this is all about divine giving. The coming of the Spirit is God's gift to his people. But yet we can also go a step further and say that he is also God's most amazing and unusual gift. And why do I say that? Because, while well, you have to think for a moment of whom the Spirit has been sent to. You know, if the Spirit had been sent to a people noble, upright, eminent, educated, sophisticated, moral, caring, that would not be such a surprise. Everyone would say they're deserving of the Spirit. But the fact of the matter is that God sends the Spirit to a people who are by nature unrighteous and not worthy. Read Romans 3. To a people who by behavior are dead in sin and trespass, read Ephesians 2. To a people who are by origin living in darkness, read Colossians 1. A moment ago we read from Ezekiel chapter 37. I think you all know what that well-known chapter is about. It's about a valley filled with dead, dry bones. And who do those bones represent? Well, they represent the people of Israel living in captivity. And you can say as well that in a sense, these bones are also representative of people, God's covenant people today, and what they are by nature and origin. Because of our sin and rebellion, all that is left to us is bones. We belong to the dead, to the cemetery. We're beyond hope. And now why would anyone bother to send the Spirit to a people so far gone, so down and out, so unattractive and so dead? My beloved, and here's the amazing thing of the gospel. God bothers. And let us thank God that he does bother. And not only does he bother to send him to us, he also has him go to work among us and in us. God orders the Spirit to take care of the renovation of his people. And the Spirit complies. Powerfully, mysteriously, miraculously, radically, the Spirit goes to work. And when the dust settles, what do we see? Do we still see bones? Do we still see a valley filled with dry bones? Do we still see believers living in darkness? No, beloved, what we see Our temples. What we see are a holy people. A restored people. A special people. You know, long ago the Apostle Paul looked at the Corinthian church. What did he see? He saw controversies, divisions, scandals, problems, no matter It seemed wherever he looked. And as such, it saddened him, but it also frustrated him. And at a certain point, he writes to the Corinthian believers and he says, Don't you know that you are God's temple? And that God's Spirit lives in you? As believers, the Holy Spirit had come to them. And he'd worked in them. And the result, he had made them into temples. They'd become special places that shouldn't be spoiled and ruined by divisions and contentions. These people should be what the Spirit has made them. Holy, harmonious, united, charitable, peaceful. That's what should dominate among them. Temples are not places where you fight. Temples are places where you seek reconciliation. Reconciliation with God. And reconciliation with your neighbor. And so, beloved, the Spirit comes and turns God's people into temples. Temples. And we might wonder, what does all that entail? In other words, what kind of work does the Spirit do in us as temples? Well, perhaps the best place to answer that is to turn to Romans chapter 8. It's one of Paul's greatest chapters, and it's known especially for the fact that at the end it has that beautiful phrase that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. But you know, there's something else in this chapter that stands out, and that's how Paul speaks about the Spirit in relation to the believers. And what does he say in Romans 8? The first thing he says, it's the Spirit, he says, who frees us. Look at verse 1 and 2. Paul writes, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit set me free. Who sets us free? It's the law of the Spirit. It's the life-giving Spirit. Here we were living under the power of sin that leads ultimately to death, but God sends His Spirit to rescue and to liberate us. And as a result, we become free. Free thanks to the Holy Spirit. You know, Frenchmen boast about the French Revolution. Americans boast about the American Revolution. And rightly or wrongly, both celebrate these events as events that set them free, whether it was free from the power or oppression of the aristocracy or from the oppression of the British. But you know, as believers, we celebrate a different freedom. A freedom from sin, from death, from the devil. A freedom by the Spirit. Oh, and how precious that freedom that we receive is. We should rejoice in it every day. We should safeguard it. And never forget it. Or compromise it. But alas, that can easily happen. Most of you have televisions in your homes. A lot of you have cable or satellite. And if you have any of that stuff, then you probably haven't missed the announcement of the new fall lineup. As usual, the networks have come out with their new shows, their new series, their new sitcoms. What are they like? From what I've heard and read, I've seen a little, they're invested with what I would call, in using the words of the Apostle Paul, the power of sin. And what I mean by the power of sin, the display and the promotion of adultery, fornication, nudity, blasphemy, foul language, violence, All these abound, and all these attract, and all of these entice. Am I mistaken, or is this not part of that power that leads, the power of sin that leads to death? And isn't all of this in direct violation and contradiction of the freedom-giving spirit Beloved, you need to guard your hearts. And you especially need to guard the hearts of your children. And I hope and pray that none of you allows indiscriminate television viewing in your homes. The Spirit sets us free. But so much around us seeks to enslave us. Again, the Spirit also, beloved, renews us. We read before the singing of the Apostles' Creed from Ezekiel 36, which refers to the Spirit giving new hearts. God says, I will put my Spirit in you and the result will be a new heart, a new spirit. In other words, the center of man's being, his heart will be changed, it says, by the Spirit. But you know, something else will also be changed, something very closely connected, and that is our minds. For the Spirit gives us new minds. And and that's Paul's point in Romans 8, verse 5, when he says, Those who live according to the sinful nature, that is, according to the flesh, have their minds set on what the nature of that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Notice how the Apostle Paul is talking here about the mind. And he's saying that whether or not we walk according to the flesh or walk according to the Spirit depends for a large part on our minds. How we live, how we work, how we act. The thoughts of our minds govern our behavior and our conduct and our outlook. And that's why Paul urges us, set your minds. And that means that we are to make sure that we that our minds are occupied are full of, are concentrated, are engrossed in the right and proper things. And what's proper? Surely not on the sinful nature or on the flesh. If so, we will end up doing the works of the flesh. And I think you know perhaps what the works of the flesh are. The Apostle Paul describes them in Galatians 5 as sexual immorality, impure thoughts, eagerness for lustful pleasure, idolatry, participation in demonic activities, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition. Divisions, the feeling that everyone is wrong except those in your own little group. Envy, drunkenness, wild parties, other kinds of sin. Paul describes it all. That's what happens when you put your mind and set your mind on the flesh. And he also says, you know where it leads? Ultimately, it leads to death's. To the grave. But at the same time, the Apostle Paul also says there's another kind of mind. A spirit-filled mind. And indeed, he urges us as believers, set your minds on what the spirit desires. And what does a spirit-filled mind look like? It's a mind that is vastly different in both its direction as well as in its fruits. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no sin. And not only is its direction and its fruit different, but you know, its end is different. For instead of leading to death, Paul says it leads us to life. To life already now. And to resurrection life later on. The one who gave life to Christ, he says in verse 11, will also give life to us. You see, we have every reason to rejoice in the Spirit who renews our hearts and our minds but then if the spirit frees us and renews us he also leads us beloved in romans 8:14 paul speaks about believers as being those who are led by the spirit and what does it mean Well, it means in a way that we don't have to find our own way through the morass of this life, but that the Spirit directs us, points us, and guides us. And of course, that subject of guidance is always, it seems, a controversial thing. Especially in our time because there are so many people in the Christian community who are now claiming that God speaks directly to them. But yet that's not what the Apostle Paul means by the leading of the Spirit. The Spirit doesn't whisper in your ear. You might like him to whisper in your ear, but the Spirit doesn't whisper in your ear and tell you what career you should seek, what job you should take, what investment you should make or not make. Now, The Spirit has given us three most powerful instruments. First, there is this holy and divine word. And second, there is prayer. And thirdly, there is those renewed minds by the Spirit. He expects us to use them every day as he leads our lives forward. So, beloved, the Spirit frees us, renews us, leads us. Also, Paul says here in Romans 8, The Spirit testifies to us. Verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with with our spirits that we are God's children. You know, one of the most prevalent problems today appears to be the problem of anxiety. And I might add that even before the stock market tanked this past week, anxiety was a major problem. And I suspect that now it's even more of a problem as we assume that our homes, our savings, and our securities may very well disappear. So where's the fix? What can we do about it? Well, it becomes abundantly clear almost every day if you read the news that there's very little we can do about it. It's doubtful whether our banks, whether our politicians, whether our economists, whether anyone has a real handle on the problem and a real fix or a solution for it. Talk about renewed anxiety. But you know what man cannot do? The Spirit can do. And also when it comes to anxiety, the Spirit can do a mighty work. And it's the work of testifying. For what does the Spirit do, especially in troubled times? He testifies to us. He witnesses to us. He reassures us. And how does He do that? By reminding us constantly and powerfully that we are the children of God. We are the sons and daughters of the Almighty. We are the heirs of the kingdom of heaven. And that's not to say that nothing bad will ever happen to us. But rather to remind us that our God is faithful. And He will see us through no matter what. He will guide us. He will strengthen us. He will rescue us. After all, we belong to His family. His only begotten Son has died for us. His electing love has embraced us. And God never forgets those whom he loves. And that brings us to a final thing here in Romans 8, which is very close to all the rest, and that is the Spirit constantly helps us. Verse 26, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. He especially helps us in that weakness connected to our our prayer life. Sometimes we don't know how to pray, what to pray. Sometimes we're just too tired or beaten down to pray. But then God says the Spirit intervenes and the Spirit either helps us to pray or He prays for us. He helps us especially in times of of crisis. Remember what the Lord Jesus says to his disciples in Luke 12, verse 12? Don't worry about what you have to say on the day when the authorities confront you and threaten you and all the rest of it. Just don't worry. The Spirit will teach you. He'll give you the words. He'll give you the strengths. And that's what happens. Peter and John stand before the Senate. Paul stands before the proconsul of Rome. And the Spirit helps them to speak. In other words, beloved, he makes sure that the bond of sonship continues and that it remains strong. Well, beloved, suffice it to say that more could be said about the work of the Holy Spirit in us. But time is limited. There's one more thing, however, that we should note. And what is it? Well, it's something that the Bible teaches us over and over again, and that the Catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism, has latched onto as well. And it's this, that the Spirit who comes to us, works in us, is also the Spirit who stays with us. And in us. In that opening illustration of this sermon, I, I cited the strange case of the Mr. Fix-It or the renovating company that comes to your home. stays in your home. That's precisely what the Holy Spirit does. He comes to you as a gift of God. And he doesn't leave you. Isn't that what the Lord Jesus promised? I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. For he lives in you and will be in you. And by the same token, the Apostle Peter writes, For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And that causes the catechism to say, He's given to me to remain with me forever. The Spirit doesn't leave us. Now, of course, that may cause some of you to ask, is that true? Does the Bible not speak about God's Spirit leaving the temple in Jerusalem. You can find that written by Ezekiel. Does the Lord Jesus not speak about the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Does the Apostle Paul not warn against us putting out the Spirit's fire? And of course all that's true. I realize that all of these cases have to do with those who who claim to be believers, but who are living in clear violation of his will. Earlier I said the coming of the Spirit and the giving of the Spirit is a gift. It's a gift that has certain conditions attached to it and it can be revoked. For live a life that insults the Spirit. Live a life that offends him. Live a life that mocks him, opposes him, derides him, and he will pack his bags and both his suitcase and his toolbox will be gone. And you know, sometimes we even see that happen in this life. Are you perhaps familiar with people who at one time... Claim to be believers. They read the Bible. They prayed. Well, they said they prayed. They worshipped the Lord every Sunday almost. They did all the so-called normal Christian things. And then for a time you lost track of them. But when you met up with them again, you discovered to your consternation that they no longer read the Bible. They no longer prayed. They no longer worshiped the Lord. How can this be? How can this happen? Unfortunately, it's not hard to answer. Turn your back on the Lord, ignore His will, insult His Spirit, and the Spirit will leave you. And when the Spirit leaves you, your life will go downhill. And it will go downhill really fast. But on the other hand, Serve the Lord with fear, I would say, and you need not fear. You know, even though you and I may serve Him with many weaknesses, and surely we do, with many shortcomings and many failings, He will not leave us. It's not our weaknesses that drive Him away. It's the kind of spirit we have, the kind of attitude we adopt, the kind of outlook we approach. It's as David writes, a broken and contrite spirit, O oh God, you will not despise. And that reminds us, beloved, pray every day for that kind of a spirit. Ask the Spirit to give you a humble spirit, and then he will never leave you. No matter how many warts there are in your life, He will never leave you. Think of David, or well, we can make a long list of his sins and misdeeds, and crimes. But in the end, the Spirit didn't leave him because he had a broken and contrite heart. And that's something that God never ignores, overlooks, or despises. And so, beloved, his work His work of binding you to Christ, of establishing you in the faith, will go on forever. Truly, we have ample reason to give thanks. Thanks to God the Father through all the gifts he gives us in Jesus Christ. And thanks in particular to the Holy Spirit for coming to us, working in us, and staying with us now and forever. Come, let's praise the Holy Spirit. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web